All right. Welcome this snowy, yucky, kind of muck of a day. Uh, welcome to you who are online. Um, to Steve and Oscar from Colombia, welcome. Good to see you all, and uh, good to see all of you here today. Uh, just uh, encouraged this week um, by the, the scriptures. And I, I want to begin this week, um, just, just first of all, by announcement, we're going to have Zoom Fellowship again tonight. You'll see the email if you want to join us for that, just a time to connect online. Um, just want to tell you about a, a country that you probably have never really thought about so much. Um, we've, we've thought a lot about India because I have traveled to India on some missions trips before. We have also um, done some work in orphanages there. We as a church have helped uh, Bob Clinton, who is uh, ministering over there, and Nepal, which is right up there in the region up there in India. Um, well, I, I know some people from Bhutan who have came over to uh, Nepal for some, uh, uh, for some ministry training. Uh, I, I know a bit about uh, Afghanistan. We hear a lot about that. And uh, Pakistan, uh, we hear, hear some things about that uh, as well in the news. Uh, Bangladesh, I've flown there before. Went to Dhaka, which is the, the capital, I think, of Bangladesh uh, there. Uh, but there's one country that I left off that map. Wh- which country is it talking about? Any idea? Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka, it's that, that little island down uh, southeast of India, about 20 miles off of the shore. And um, not sure even some of you really know where Sri Lanka is or, or what it's about. It's a lot like India, um, but chances are you probably don't know much about it because we don't follow the issues of the, the things going on in Sri Lanka just because their, their events have zero consequence to us in the United States. doesn't matter what happens in Sri Lanka to us. Um, but in recent decades... In Sri Lanka, the people have suffered greatly. In fact, they have just gone through 25 years of civil war in Sri Lanka, um, starting in 1983 and ending in 2009. Think about that, 25 years of, uh, of, of terrorists, basically in-country in terrorists, fighting against the regime, fighting to try to take hold of what was going on for 25 years. In contrast, civil war in America took four years, and we still feel the effects of the civil war even today. Can you imagine what 25 years of civil war does to a nation? How it crushes the infrastructure, the the suffering of the people. 100,000 people are killed over this time in war. That's a lot of carnage for a a country of in the order of about 20 million people. The the economic uh, effects of this are a lot. The poverty that comes about is, is a lot as a result of that. Uh, furthermore, the Sri Lankan government has been accused of human rights abuse, human rights abuses, arbitrary detentions, and forced disappearances. Uh, that means that right, you're, you're just living your life, and if you're any bit part of the resistance, you're just gone and are never around again. And it doesn't take much imagination for uh, to understand what this brought about all the suffering on the people of Sri Lanka. The war didn't come out of nowhere, right? No war just starts. Uh, really started in 1948 when Sri Lanka gained their independence from Britain. And there's always been this ethnic struggle on the island. Between 80% of the people are Sinhalese and 10% of them are Tamils. And, and whenever you have uh, oftentimes a majority culture and the minority culture, we know that in the United States, you have the majority culture and the minority culture, the majority, um, the minority often feels 
oppressed and discriminated against, and in this case, very much so. The, uh, the Tamils, just 10% of the country, couldn't go to school, right? Stopped from jobs. Mac- massive economic oppression as a result. There's a, a lot of resentment, there were revol- revolts and uprisings until finally in 1983, the rising revolt came to a head, decades of war. So why, why do I share all that? Some to give you a perspective of what's happening in our country. I mean, what's happening in our country is bad, all right? But compare it to Sri Lanka, what's happening there kind of gives a perspective of things. Our, our country, though, is facing some trying times. Ten days ago, an assault on our nation's capital left five people dead. That's more, by the way, than Benghazi, where four ambassadors were killed in that uprising. Uh, over 100 people have been arrested and charged with federal crimes. On Wednesday, our president was impeached a second time. And I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat or Independent or what you are. That's not good. It's not good to have division in our, our country. We have racial tensions in our country. We have COVID-19 in our country. These are trying times. Not quite like Sri Lanka, but some of the political upheaval along the same lines. And in our trouble, here's why I introduce this, because there's no better text for us to go into to think about than our text this morning. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. So if you haven't opened your Bibles or turned them on, I encourage you to do so in Acts chapter 4. My title of my message this morning is... uh, persecution and prayer, because that's what uh, this passage is going to talk about. It's going to talk about persecution. It's going to talk about difficulty. It's going to talk about prayer. And I want to tell you, as you're turning there in your Bible, about this man. His name is Ajith Fernando. I heard him speak at a Zyron God conference a number of years ago, was thoroughly impressed with the man. And uh, he is, uh, has been for 35 years, the national director of the Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka. That means for 35 years, right, during much of the time of the Civil War, he was pouring himself out for the youth in Sri Lanka. And uh, after, right, when, when, when tensions were on his highest in 1983, he was there, right, when, when things are back and forth. And, they, and he signals out there was one particular riot that they had, which was, which was worse than all of them, and, and which signaled the start of the Civil War. And during that worst riot, he said the first message that he preached to try to give perspective on this was from Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. And uh, I'm hoping and praying that this might help give us a perspective as well of all the issues that we are struggling with today in, in our nation, in our, in our country, to realize that we're in the, the right place. As this text will, will ground us in the sovereignty of God and prepare us for hardship. And even just not now, but for weeks and months and years to come, that this text might be something that resonates in our hearts and our minds. Fernando, Ajith Fernando, said in 1998, uh, during the, still during the crisis in Sri Lanka, he, he said this. He said, in the past few years, this passage, more than any other text in the Bible, has sustained me and given me the courage to persevere. This text right here, in the midst of all the political difficulties, in in things in in their country which is far different than us, and far more worse, this is the text that has sustained him and given him the courage to persevere. So we're going to look this morning at persecution and prayer. Now before I read the text, I just want to catch us up on the context because it's super important. Chapter 3 began with this lame beggar who'd never walked. He was 40 years old. He encountered Peter, asked for money. Peter gave him something better. Peter said, silver and gold I I do not have, but 
What I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the lame man rose up and walked, and he leapt about, and he was praising God. And when the people saw it, they were filled with wonder and amazement, and they gave Peter the opportunity to preach the gospel, which he did in chapter 3. And really the crux of that came in chapter 3, verses uh, 14 and 15, where he pointed out, he said, you all denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. Whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. And then he commanded them, he says, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, alive and well, your Messiah. And, and that sermon there was only the beginning. They continued throughout the rest of the evening, preaching and teaching to the people about the resurrection of Jesus. That irked the religious leaders, especially the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, who arrested them because they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they put them in jail for the night. And the next day, then, they, uh, they appeared before them for questioning. And, and Peter then, when they were asked, by what name do you do this? They said, the name of Jesus, the one who healed this man. And then, chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus himself. And, and, and the council, verse 13, saw the boldness of Peter and John, perceived they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus, and they were in a quandary. They had, they had trouble. The, the miracle was undeniable, but the preaching of these, these men was so bold, they didn't know what to do. So they charged them to, to go out so they can talk about it, and ultimately they called them come back in. In verse 18, they charged them not to speak at all in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So here was a, a time of potential persecution, and they were persecuted. They were rebuked. They were slapped on the wrist. And essentially, then the early church picked this up. We're very thankful that things didn't turn worse than they were. And it says in verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voice to God and said, here's what they prayed. They said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his servant, his anointed for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hands to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And having prayed that prayer, the place in which they had gathered was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. And you see the persecution coming and then the prayer in response. And then God answering that prayer, they would continue to speak in boldness. Well, persecution and prayer are the theme of this text. And I just want to work us through these points. And here's our first point this morning, right? Persecution drives us to prayer. Persecution will drive us to prayer. I mean, that's what we see here. We, we, I've, I call this the first wave of persecution upon the church. And what do they do? They go instantly to prayer. They understood how it could have been much worse. They understood how Paul, Peter and John could have been held guilty 
and could have been taken to Pilate, who, by the way, was still in power months after Jesus was handed over to him to be crucified a few months earlier. But instead of being handed over to Pilate, eventually be crucified, Peter, he was released, just rebuked and released. And they instantly turned to God in prayer. It says here in verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they'd heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and prayed. This is the natural response, by the way, of the people of God. You see it over and over and over again in all the scriptures. I mean, just consider David and the Psalms. His enemies are coming up against him. And what does he always do? He always just turns to God in prayer. And we see in the Psalms just recorded for us instance after instance after instance of of difficulties and persecutions coming on him and just turning to God in prayer. And and, and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of them. I just started in uh, in Psalm one and Psalm three. Verse one, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. You see David's enemies coming upon him and 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 mocking him, telling him there's no salvation in God. You're trusting God. There's no salvation there. And so what does David do? There's persecution. He prays. Psalm three, verse seven and eight. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord and your blessing upon your people. Just praying for God's protection, right? Salvation belongs to you, and I'm praying your protection upon your people while your enemies, you break their teeth and you strike them on the cheek. That's just Psalm 3. Psalm 7. Oh, Lord, my God, in you I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Last, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. David was on the run. And, and, and he pictured himself being destroyed by his enemies, much like a, a lion would tear up a wildebeest so as to eat it and devour it. And he says, oh, Lord, my God, I take refuge in you. Right. Save me. Psalm 13, <clears throat> two through four. How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my vote, my foes rejoice and I am shaken. David, his enemies were prevailing, but yet he's praying for God so that they would not prevail. And these these are just a few of all of David's psalms. You just look there and I encourage you look for the trouble, look for the trial and how it is that he's praying in the midst of persecution. But but what we saw of David is true of Moses when the people of Egypt pursued them in the wilderness. After they'd escaped, after they fled, after the Passover. And he was in trouble. He prayed. And when the people of Israel rose up against him, Moses turned to the Lord and prayed. The same is true of the prophet. When Jeremiah was in trouble in the cistern, in the pit, he prayed. When Elijah was in trouble, he was there by the brook. He just prayed. When Habakkuk was in trouble and in Israel, Jerusalem was about to be sacked. He prayed to God. And over and over again, you see the pattern in the scriptures when People, God's people are persecuted, they turn to prayer. That's how it is always that uh, persecution drives us to prayer. Now, in our days, how much persecution do we face? Not much. Right? We live in a free society, thank God, where you can uh, worship and believe much of anything what you want to do. And we can 
gather here together. We hardly face any persecution. And yet the principle remains, even if you replace persecution with problems, problems drive us to prayer too. Right? When problems are too big for us, right? where do we turn? We turn to the one who's big enough for our problems. We turn to the Lord. And, and you know what I'm talking about, right? Your family members diagnosed with cancer, what do you do? You pray. You call upon others to pray. Um, someone's in a car accident and, and in the emergency room, what do you do? The cry goes out for prayer. When some child goes missing, you, you, you pray. When some disaster strikes or an earthquake or flood, right, the cry goes out for prayer, right? Pray for these people, pray for these people because it's beyond us. And, and this is true of the people of God. It's also true of non-Christians as well. Uh, I just remember September 11th, right, when, when the planes ran into the World Trade Centers. There's a crisis time of our nation. And the churches that next day were packed. We were visiting a church that day. Um, and it was packed. That's why this passage is really good for us this morning, because we have a problem as a country. And you say, well, what should you do? I say, pray. Turn to the Lord and pray. That's what Ajit Fernando found this passage to be so helpful for him. His country is going through major problems. And he knew that his problems were too large for him, and so he prayed, like Acts 4 tells us to. And this is indicative of, of all believers. Right? When, when problems come upon us, we just turn them over to the Lord. There are burdens and we, we give them to God and we say, God, just help us, help us with these things. Because, right, fundamentally, we know that the problems are bigger than us and we need help that is beyond us. And the good news is this, right? The, the Lord is, is our help. He hears our prayers. He's ready to help those who call upon him, who call upon him in truth. I encourage you to turn to the Lord in your troubles. Seek him in your problems. I mean, later in Acts, we're going to see this. In, in Acts chapter 12, Peter again is going to find himself in prison under the threat of death. I mean, in, in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, Herod had just killed James by the sword. It pleased the people. He put Peter in prison. The next day, probably Peter is going to face the sword. And so when he was in prison, we find the, the church at that moment organizing a prayer meeting in Mary's house. I love the way Luke describes that event. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer was made to God by the church. They made earnest prayer because there were earnest problems. And, and maybe this helps to explain why we as a church don't experience earnest prayers. Maybe we don't have earnest problems. I bet the worship in Sri Lanka is a lot different than the worship in the United States their trials, their 25-year civil war, people persecuted, people hardship, I'm sure their prayers were much more difficult, much more different. And, and, and personally, I just say, right, look at the, are your prayers earnest? Maybe your problems aren't so big. But when we feel problems, right, we, we ought to go, and, and however small your problems are, you ought to go to the Lord. But I just say nothing will make a praying people like problems and persecution. But I, I just say this, right? Don't wait till the problems come in your life to turn to the Lord. Because it's, as uh, Proverbs 1 says, that he may turn a deaf ear. Because he calls out, he calls out, he calls out. He wants us to come to him now. He wants us to come to him now. So when the problems come, he'll hear our prayer. Turn to the Lord now, lest you be unprepared even to pray in that day. 
Well, let's look at their prayer. This comes in verses 24 through 30. We've seen how persecution drives us to prayer. Secondly, now we see that prayer guides us in persecution. Verse 24. Look what, look what Luke writes for us. He says there. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said. This is what they prayed. But notice, first of all, even before we get to their prayer, that how corporate this was. They weren't merely praying alone. It's not as if uh, they heard Peter and John, oh yeah, good, and then they all went to their homes to pray. No, this is a gathered corporate prayer meeting. There is a place for praying alone, as Jesus said, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and you pray to your father who's in secret, and that's probably where the majority of prayer takes place. But there is something for corporate prayer as well. It's Praying together with others. That's what we see here in verse 24. They lifted their voices together to God. We don't know how this took place. But all their voices were all involved. Yet we read here that in their prayer they said the same thing. So how, how, how is it? Um, they, all, they all spoke these things. I don't think they had this prayer memorized. Um, I don't think it was written out and said, okay, here are the prayers we're going to read so we can all read all voices together. I think the best explanation is what J.A. Alexander said. One person prayed and the whole company gave audible assent to what was said. In other words, there were lots of amens and there were lots of mm-hmms, which I think are good in prayer. The only way for us to, to do this, to speak together with one voice. And I would encourage our practice here at Rock Valley Bible Church to give audible assent let others know you agree with them and you're praying with them, even if you're not saying the words. Let's encourage you also to, to have people that you can pray with, that you are praying with. Uh, I met this week with a, a pastor who is uh, now retired, recently retired. And uh, he, he retired and he moved out to the Rockford area to be with his son in February, hardly knowing a soul here in Rockford. And um, he's, he kind of, he was, he was relating to me some... Uh, struggles he's facing he says you know what i don't have a group um here was pastoring for years he had all these groups of all these people but all of a sudden he pastored in the chicago area and now he's here without a group and he feels i mean he, he's he, he's worked on it pretty well but he feels somewhat alone he doesn't have that group of people that he can express his burdens to and pray with do you have a group like that your family hopefully but beyond that, just encourage you. That's, that's how they did. They prayed together. And so what did they pray? First of all, they prayed the sovereignty of God. Verse 24, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And this really, by the way, is where all prayer should begin. It's the reality that the Lord governs the universe. In fact, this is why we pray in the first place. Because we have a God who made everything, who is actively involved and engaged in the universe. It wouldn't make sense to pray to a, a God of the deists who has merely created the world and let it go. No, he's created the world and he's involved in the world. And we know this God who made everything is, is able and capable to help us in our problems. We're not sufficient to solve our problems, but the Lord is. And we need the help of someone greater than our, ourselves. And I just say this. You should begin your prayers with an affirmation of sovereignty, a, a reminding of sovereignty. This, this is what Jesus meant when in the Lord's Prayer he said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, right, God, you reign in heaven. All power belongs to you. Your name is holy. You are totally different than us. You are self-sufficient. That's what that exclamation says. And it's a reminder that 
tells us all there's nothing too difficult for the Lord because there's nothing outside of his sovereign control. And we'll see later how central this was to their prayer, the sovereignty of God. But second, not only sovereignty, but they continue on to the scriptures. Verse 25, this is a sovereign Lord who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit. So here he begins to quote from Psalm chapter 2. Fully believing, they, they, they believe the, the inspiration of the scripture. This was by the spirit. David spoke spirit inspired words says, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is Psalm two. This is political turmoil all around him. You've got Gentiles raging. You got people's plotting. You have kings and rulers using all the earthly authority that they can to resist the Lord, to resist his anointed. And that describes exactly what was going on in their time. That it describes much of what happens in our country today. Kings and earth raging against the Lord, against Jesus. It's the assault of our government upon Christianity, right? I mean, religion is okay, but once you start defining religion as Jesus is the only way, all of a sudden it doesn't, it's not permissible. And so likewise in Sri Lanka, that's why Ajith Fernando found this so helpful. We found the, the Gentiles raging and the people's plotting in vain. This is from Psalm 2, like I said. This is the first two verses of Psalm 2. I want us to go on and listen to the rest of Psalm 2 in, in pieces. But this is what the kings and rulers and people are saying about the Lord and his anointed. Psalm chapter 2, verse 3, that right after that, right, the kings are setting themselves, the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us cast their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They view themselves as being bound by the sovereignty of God, this God and his anointed. And they just want to get out of that. They want to revolt. They want to rid themselves of the accountability to the Lord. And that's always how it has been with the, the people of the world. It's always how it's been in the world. There's always those who resist the Lord. Children resist the authority of their parents. People resist the authority of their bosses or their government officials. They're just always how it is. Let's get those bonds off of us. But ultimately, the most powerful in the world don't have others underneath them. And so they, they go even higher, right? And they go against the bonds of the Lord, raging against the Lord. And we see, continuing on in Psalm 2, how successful they are, right? Get the reins of God off of us. Psalm chapter 2, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. And the Lord holds them in derision. The New American Standard says that the Lord mocks at them. <laughs> what do you think you're doing? Right? A child may have success revolting against his or her parent. Right? People may have success revolting against the authority of countries. Right? The American Revolution, case in point. But right when it comes to kings and nations and rulers... Revolting against God. How much success have they ever had? Their track record is zero. No success ever. As much as people try to resist the Lord, they have no chance. It's, a, it's like a, a little boy. right? Maybe an eight-year-old boy. Maybe, maybe who, Jack, maybe it's like you. How old are you, Jack? You're eight. It's maybe like you standing up before Muhammad Ali. Do you know who Muhammad Ali is? Didn't think so. He was a big boxer in the day. Right, he's this champ. Maybe Mike Tyson would be a good one. Right, Jack against Mike Tyson. Ah, Jack would stand no chance if Mike Tyson chose to really go at him. Or it's like a, a little girl. Who's, who's a little girl? Like JC, like you playing against Michael Jordan for basketball. You think he could take Michael? I don't think so. Or LeBron or whoever. I don't think he could take him. Right, but 
It's not like any of these examples because that's far too close. Maybe it's like an ant against an elephant. Maybe the ant's going, oh, here, Mr. Elephant, I'm going to get you. And the elephant, right, would just, just with one little, not even, he just, just squashed the ant. But you know what? That, even that doesn't approximate what, what it is. It's more than that. And I would say all comparisons, all similes don't even compare with what it's like when the nations rage against the Lord. As Isaiah says, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are accounted as dust on the scales. So you take all the nations and you put them on the scales going to weigh between God and them. And they don't even tip the scales. They're like one drop in a bucket. They're even less than that. Isaiah 40 verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before the Lord. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. That's why God's laugh. That's why God laughs. It's futile to try to thwart the plan of the Lord. It, you cannot do it. And that's why we can find so much comfort in whatever goes on. God is over it all and ruling it all. Psalm 2 continues after saying in verse 4 that God sits in the heavens and laughs. He says this, Then I, he will speak with them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. In other words, right at the time when they're revolting, when they're against him, he says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Psalm 2 is all about God's installation of the Messiah on the throne. He did it. He will do it. He will get it done. And, and that's why the early church went to this passage. is because what God prophesied through David, 700 B.C., came to pass actually in, in the very months previous to uh, the early church praying these things. What David prophesied in the future, the people of Jerusalem saw carried out in time. The scripture was fulfilled in their day and age. And this is where we see the next section of the prayer that goes from the sovereignty of God. Continuing through the scriptures to address the situation. They addressed it. Here, here's, so, so they read this and they said, truly, this is what happened. What was Psalm 2 is happening now. Happened now. It said, for truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, I love how precise these verses are. Psalm 2 speaks about raging rulers and kings. It speaks of the, the Gentiles and the peoples, as if not only people in authority, but all the people underneath them are likewise joining with them. And verse 27 identifies all four of these categories of people. Herod was a king, and Pontius Pilate was a ruler. The Romans were Gentiles, and Annas and Caiaphas led the people of Israel in their rebellion against Jesus, the Anointed One, who all said, crucify him, crucify him, all together. And though the nation raged, God still accomplished his plan. His plan in Psalm 2, verse 6, was to set his king upon Zion, and that's exactly what he did. He established Jesus, he established Jesus as king and ruler to the ends of the earth, and there will be a day... When he comes to take possession of it all. That's where Psalm 2 continues to go. Psalm 2 and verse 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a, a potter's vessel. This is the posture of Jesus. He's waiting until a day when his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And he take full control of the universe. It's God's plan. And though the, the nations tried, and though they, they tried to kill the Messiah, and though the Jews rose up and they tried to kill the Messiah, they tried to thwart him, that was exactly according to God's plan. 
that it wasn't the earthly Zion where he's going to establish himself. It was the heavenly Zion, and he would come down someday and establish his earthly Zion, the new heavens and the new earth. But it's exactly according to God's predestined plan. Look at verse 28. He says to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God predestined all the events around the crucifixion, around the birth of Christ, around the life of Christ, and around the crucifixion of Christ. He predestined that Jesus would be betrayed by Judas, saying, John 13, Jesus said this, the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, John 13, 18. Jesus knew full well that Jews were going to come and, and uh, betray him. That the scriptures, which were written long before, must be fulfilled because they were predestined. God predestined that Jesus would be abandoned by his disciples. Jesus said this, Matthew 26, 31. You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus knew full well that he was going to be struck and all his disciples, all his sheep would scatter. Because it's what Scripture says. That's what God had predetermined. Predestined to take place. God predestined that the rulers of Israel reject their Messiah. He predicted that Herod and Pontius Pilate would hand them over for crucifixion. And Jesus even foretold that. Matthew 20, 18 and 19. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. We mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will rise again on the third day. See, all this just didn't just happen. This was God's plan. Look again, right? Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, right? The, the hand is the active movement of God and the plan is the active thought and foreknowledge and uh, determination of God. And, and God had predestined this to take place. And, and this, by the way, it's huge comfort for us. Is that the world is going exactly according to God's plan. You say, oh, the world's getting worse. God's plan. You say, oh, things are out of control. No, it's not. It's in control. It's in God's plan. In the events of our nation, it's not outside of God's control. But it's exactly what God has predestined to take place. No accident Donald Trump was our president the last four years. Zero accident. And it's zero accident that Biden will be our president the next four years. COVID-19, zero accident. The siege of our capital, zero accident. Didn't catch God by surprise. It was God's plan. And it may take down our nation. It's God's plan. <clears throat> Rome fell. <clears throat> Many other nations fall. It's God's plan. And that can give us great comfort ahead, knowing that history is really his story. He's written it out. And we get to live it out. Now, this moment, there are people who think about predestination and they object philosophically at all these events on the earth. And the biggest objection comes about responsibility. Yeah, the biggest thing, well, if God predestined, then I'm not accountable for my actions. I could just do whatever I want and sin and just say, God, right, you, you're the one to blame. And I say, not so fast. Don't buy the argument. Because even right here in Acts chapter 4, though the early church talked about God's predestined plan, they never held Herod or Pontius Pilate or the Jews or the Gentiles as guiltless. In fact, God's plan was, right, was to, to see them be guilty in putting the Messiah to death so that they could be forgiven through faith and trust in him. In fact, that's the only way any of us would be forgiven. But they were guilty of their actions. Remember back in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, 
And Peter's preaching said, Let all the house of Israel know, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they were cut to the heart, right? They, they felt their guilt. They felt they were guilty. They didn't philosophically think about, well, God has determined it all, therefore I'm not responsible. I said, no, it's not how it works. But people can get into the philosophy of what, what predestined plan is, is all about. And you get into the philosophical conundrums, right? Saying, well, the Bible talks about predestination. That can't be true because da-da-da-da. But listen, the Bible also speaks about how we're all accountable and responsible for our actions before God. And how that works is beyond us. I mean, that's the whole point of Romans chapter 9. Right? It's, just, it's, just, it's just beyond us. It's not that we don't know it. It's that we cannot know it. And we cannot understand how it, how it all works. And I just say God is sovereign over all things. We're responsible for our actions and how that works. I don't know. I certainly feel like I'm free to do as I please. And yet I understand that my life is in God's hands in every step of the way. And that ought to give us great comfort during these days of upheaval and, and trial and difficulty and hardship. Knowing that it's going according to plan. We may not like the plan. We may disagree with the plan. But it's going according to God's plan. It's predestined to take place. Let's look finally at their supplication. <laughs> finally, after all of this, after looking at the sovereignty of God, looking at the Scripture, and looking at their situation, finally now, they, they speak about their supplication. And I would say that this pattern ought to be your pattern in prayer as well. I think it's similar to the pattern that was in, found in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus speaks about how we ought to pray. Right, Beginning with, Hallowed be thy name. And then uh, your kingdom come, your will be done. Just speaking about God's plan, right, according to Scripture. And then just even the situation which you're in, right? I've got bread, I need bread, right? Just, just deliver that up and just ask of God. Too often when we pray, we jump right into a request. We start asking God for things. And, and uh, rather than reminding ourselves of who God is and, and what God has said, and I just encourage you in your prayers, slow down and remind yourself first of, of the Scripture and what's true about God. It will shape your supplications. Here we go. Their supplications. All right? And uh, I do think that thinking about the sovereignty of God, as it does, right, we, we think about these things, and it, it, it makes sense, right? If, if you were in the early church, what would you pray at this situation, right? What, what would your supplication be? It, it's very interesting. My prayer would go something like this. says, <clears throat> God... We are thankful that the rulers have let Peter and John go. And we pray that this might be freedom for the gospel. That, that the gospel might even go free and that we can speak boldly and we might not fear persecution because we're going to be just fine from that. And that the, the rulers are going to let that go. And so we ask you, O oh God, to, to change the hearts of the rulers so that they let the gospel go run free. I mean, that would have been my sort of prayer, right? That I could speak openly and freely about Jesus without opposition. But that's not what they prayed for. And I think it's because they saw the sovereignty of God, thought about Scripture and their situation. They, they asked for two things. They said, look upon their threats and grant us boldness while you act. All right? In other words, here's my point. Right? Prayer emboldens us for persecution. Seriously, persecution is the very thing that got them into trouble. And now they're praying for more boldness. I'm sorry, boldness is what got them into trouble, the persecution. Now they're praying for more of that. 
Right? And in the midst of persecution, this is how I think prayer works when we're thinking about the gospel. That They just were emboldened them to pray. Their first request, it's interesting, was just an acknowledgement. They wanted God to acknowledge and notice their threats. Look, look what he said, now Lord, look upon their threats. Just notice, all they're looking for is acknowledgement. This is not a prayer for judgment. It's not a prayer for vengeance or destruction. They're not calling fire down upon the Sanhedrin. None of that. It's simply a prayer that, that, Lord, you know about their threats. And you know about the hearts of the men behind that. And you know all about that. So, Lord, just, just take notice of that. So, God, just, just know that. And then they get to their second request. It's basically for boldness. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And I love how this, this is phrased. It's just, just let us speak your word. Right? But let's speak your word. Let us continue to speak your word. What? They've been speaking boldly. They said, God, help us and strengthen us to continue in our boldness. And just not little boldness, but with all boldness as they are, are praying those things. Right? See, you won't be bold if you're not bold now. You won't be bold in the future if you're not bold now. And can you pray this? Well, grant your servants, grant me, O oh God, to continue to speak your word with boldness. I know there are lots of people aspiring to be missionaries, right? They have this, uh, this uh, notion that they want to go to Sri Lanka and want to be a missionary. want to preach about Christ in a foreign land. And yet, here at home, they're not talking about Jesus at all. But here's the idea, right? Continue. We want to continue to speak the word of God with boldness. And, and they were. Chapter 4 and verse 13, they saw the boldness of Peter and John. They just wanted to continue on that. Right? So I, I just encourage you to be able to pray that prayer. Be bold now. had a very funny example of that uh, last week. Um, Yvonne and I, if we told you we were in Arizona, whatever, two weeks ago, and a good friend of ours, Jake Menon, uh, got his wisdom teeth taken out. And uh, maybe you've seen the things nowadays where kids coming out of anesthesia Right, they got their phones, and so they're they're putting their phone on Jake as he's coming out, and he was he was pretty funny, uh, just seeing the seeing the things that he's saying as he's coming out, and the things he's concerned about it when he's loopy, and afterwards he didn't remember it. The only way he knew it is because we had a phone on him, and it's interesting. One of the things he said, he, he was there in the car, kind of blood dripping out, whatever gauze in his mouth, and he said, "I shared the gospel. I shared the gospel with the." Uh, but the girl wanted to come and believe in Jesus. Just wanted to trust in Jesus. And then one of the one of her kids, which was was with Jake at that time, says, "Oh, what what did they say? What what did she say?" Oh, she said, "That's nice." Kind of just went on, and that was like all the conversation. Oh, that's that's nice. It's far different than what the the apostles experienced here. But it was his boldness. If you're bold under anesthesia to share the gospel, that just didn't happen. That's come about, and if you know him, he's been bold with his uh, high school team and his opportunities in RA and college, and he is all about just preaching Christ and being about sharing the gospel. That's what he was, and that's where we ought to be so that when we're under anesthesia, we'll share the gospel with other people, when we're loopy, right? Because it's so much part of it, and that's the idea here is to continue to speak your word of God with boldness. And then, and then in verse 30, it speaks about miracles, and it's not praying for miracles, it's just assuming them, which took place in the, in the first century church. He says, while wow, you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. See, they had seen and experienced miracles. They, they saw the miracle of Pentecost. 
And they saw the miracle of this lame man rising again. And they just trusted that God was going to work miracles in their life so that, what, they have an opportunity to preach. It's not the miracles that's going to persuade them. It's just these are going to come along and give them opportunities. And indeed, that, that happened. If you look over in chapter 5 and verse 12, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Here's just what they do. They just knew they were going to do that. And just these, these miracles were just coming from them regularly. And we're talking about miracles of verifiable ways that no one denies, of lame people walking, right? of blind people seeing, even of people raised from the dead. Those are the kind of miracles that are biblical miracles. And these apostles assume they would be. But it's the miracles that give opportunities and to preach the gospel and be bold. God shows his mercy as they are his messengers. And then we see in verse 31, the answer to the prayer. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Don't know exactly what this means, right? But I, I guess some sort of confirmation from God. Right, but here's this the shaking of the place. And that's not always how God works. God doesn't always shake a place to acknowledge the answering of prayer with Elijah. It was a, a still small voice that Elijah heard. And many times we don't even know until years later. Maybe we find out how God answered a prayer. But there it was a God's presence shaking the place. And they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? Again, this is, this is different than Pentecost, right? This is a, a filling. This is a, an empowering. Chapter 4 and verse 8, there was Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And here we see them filled with the Holy Spirit so they might go forth and speak with boldness. And, and that's exactly what they did. Verse 31 right there at the end. And continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So this persecution that they faced led them to prayer. And prayers they thought through, right? The sovereignty of God. And they thought through the scriptures and their situation, right? They requested that they just wanted to continue to be bold to see the kingdom go forth. I just want to encourage you along the same lines, right? To pray forth for boldness. And I know during these times of COVID, it's so difficult, right? Because we're, we're so apart and we're so separated from people. But just encourage you to be, to be bold. To, to see people in their need and so that that's your reputation. Um, I, I did go this week. I played some pool for the first time in a long time. I, and I walk in the pool hall. And the first word out of the guy's mouth was, Hiya, preach! Like knowing that that's who I am and what I'm about. And, and just, you know, had, had some opportunities there over, over the course of the evening. Just to, just to speak with others. And just, I, I just encourage you as well. Just to pray for opportunities that you might continue to be bold. That's how we can ultimately, right, be witnesses for Jesus. It's just opportunities, right? It just plead for them and, and beg for them. Try to be light in a dark place, wherever you are, that God would give opportunities you might speak forth with boldness. So let's pray. Father, I pray, just in light of this text, you might, first of all, just give us comfort to know what's happening in the United States, that as trialsome as it is, as difficult as it is, God, it's not outside of your control. And you have situations in the world right now which are far worse than what we're, we're facing. But it's all in accordance with your plan. God, your plan ultimately to have your son come and rule and reign upon the earth. And so, Lord, I would pray that in that time, just even from Acts 4, that you would grant us boldness, that we would go forth and speak forth the name of Jesus. And we, we thank you for his atoning death, the sacrifice upon the cross for our sins, and may it 
May it embolden us to, to speak forth the words of life to other people that they might come to know Jesus. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.